Question 164 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde. Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues. The Virtue of Temperance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde. Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues. The Virtue of Temperance, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 164. Of the Punishments of the First Man's Sin, in two articles. We must now consider the punishments of the first sin, and under this head there are two points of inquiry. First, death, which is the common punishment. Second, the other particular punishments mentioned in Genesis. First article. Whether death is the punishment of our first parents' sin. Objection 1. It would seem that death is not the punishment of our first parents' sin. For that which is natural to man cannot be called a punishment of sin, because sin does not perfect nature but vitiates it. Now death is natural to man, and this is evident both from the fact that his body is composed of contraries, and because mortal is included in the definition of man. Therefore, death is not a punishment of our first parent's sin. Objection to further, death and other bodily defects are similarly found in man as well as in other animals, according to Ecclesiasticus 3.19. The death of man and beasts is one, and the condition of them both equal. But in dumb animals, death is not a punishment of sin. Therefore, neither is it so in men. Objection 3. Further, the sin of our first parents was the sin of particular individuals, whereas death affects the entire human nature. Therefore, it would seem that it is not a punishment of our first parent's sin. Objection 4. Further, all are equally descended from our first parents. Therefore, if death were the punishment of our first parent's sin, it would follow that all men would suffer death in equal measure. But this is clearly untrue since some die sooner and some more painfully than others. Therefore, death is not the punishment of the first sin. Objection 5. Further, the evil of punishment is from God, as stated above in the Pars Prima, question 48, article 6, and question 49, article 2. But death, apparently, is not from God, for it is written in Wisdom 1.13, God made not death. Therefore, death is not the punishment of the first sin. Objection 6. Further, seemingly, punishments are not meritorious, since merit is comprised under good and punishment under evil. Now death is sometimes meritorious, as in the case of a martyr's death. Therefore, it would seem that death is not a punishment. Objection 7. Further, punishment would seem to be painful. 
but death apparently cannot be painful since man does not feel it when he is dead and he cannot feel it when he is not dying therefore death is not a punishment of sin objection eight further if death were a punishment of sin it would have followed sin immediately but this is not true for our first parents lived a long time after their sin according to genesis five five therefore seemingly death is not a punishment of sin on the contrary the apostle says in romans five twelve by one man sin entered into this world and by sin death i answer that if any one on account of his fault be deprived of a favor bestowed on him the privation of that favor is a punishment of that fault now as we stated in the first part question 95 article 1 as well as in question 97 article 1 god bestowed this favor on man in his primitive state that as long as his mind was subject to god the lower powers of his soul would be subject to his rational mind and his body to his soul but inasmuch as through man's mind withdrew from the subjection to god the result was that neither were his lower powers wholly subject to his reason whence there followed so great a rebellion of the carnal appetite against the reason nor was the body wholly subject to the soul whence arose death and other bodily defects for life and soundness of body depend on the body being subject to the soul as the perfectible is subject to its perfection consequently on the other hand death sickness and all defects of the body are due to the lack of the body's subjection to the soul it is therefore evident that as the rebellion of the carnal appetite against the spirit is a punishment of our first parent's sin so also are death and all defects of the body reply to objection one a thing is said to be natural if it proceeds from the principles of nature now the essential principles of nature are form and matter the form of man is his rational soul which is of itself immortal wherefore death is not natural to man on the part of his form the matter of man is a body such as is composed of contraries of which corruptibility is a necessary consequence and in this respect death is natural to man now this condition attached to the nature of the human body results from a natural necessity since it was necessary for the human body to be the organ of touch and consequently a mean between objects of touch and this was impossible were it not composed of contraries as the philosopher states in on the soul to eleven on the other hand this condition is not attached to the adaptability of matter to form because if it were possible since the form is incorruptible its matter should rather be incorruptible in the same way a saw needs to be of iron this being suitable to its form and action so that its hardness may make it fit for cutting but that it be liable to rust is a necessary result of such a matter and is not according to the agent's choice for if the craftsman were able 
of the iron he would make a saw that would not rust. Now God who is author of man is all-powerful, wherefore when he first made man he conferred on him the favor of being exempt from the necessity resulting from such a matter, which favor, however, was withdrawn through the sin of our first parents. Accordingly, death is both natural on account of a condition attaching to matter, and penal on account of the loss of the divine favor preserving man from death. Reply to Objection 2. This likeness of man to other animals regards a condition attaching to matter, namely, the body being composed of contraries. But it does not regard the form, for man's soul is immortal, whereas the souls of dumb animals are mortal. Reply to Objection 3. Our first parents were made by God not only as particular individuals, but also as principles of the whole human nature to be transmitted by them to their posterity, together with the divine favor preserving them from death. Hence through their sin, the entire human nature, being deprived of that favor in their posterity, incurred death. Reply to Objection 4. A twofold defect arises from sin. One is by way of a punishment appointed by a judge and such a defect should be equal in those to whom the sin pretends equally. The other defect is that which results accidentally from this punishment, for instance, that one who has been deprived of his sight for a sin he has committed should fall down in the road. Such a defect is not proportionate to the sin, nor does a human judge take it into account, since he cannot foresee chance happenings. Accordingly, the punishment appointed for the first sin and proportionately corresponding thereto was the withdrawal of the divine favor whereby the rectitude and integrity of human nature was maintained. But the defects resulting from this withdrawal are death and other penalties of the present life. Wherefore, these punishments need not be equal in those to whom the first sin equally appertains. Nevertheless, since God foreknows all future events, divine providence has so disposed that these penalties are appointed in different ways to various people. This is not on account of any merits or demerits previous to this life as origin held, for this is contrary to the words of Romans 9.11, when they had not done any good or evil and also contrary to statements made in the first part, question 90, article 4, as well as question 118, article 3, namely, that the soul is not created before the body, but either in punishment of their parents' sins, inasmuch as the child is something belonging to the father, wherefore parents are often punished in their children, or again, it is for a remedy intended for the spiritual welfare of the person who suffers these penalties, to wit, that he may thus be turned away from his sins, or lest he take pride in his virtues, that he may be crowned for his patience. Reply to Objection 5. Death may be considered in two ways. First, as an evil of human nature, and thus it is not of God 
but is a defect befalling man through his fault. Secondly, as having an aspect of good, namely, as being a just punishment, and thus it is from God. Wherefore Augustine says, in his Retractions 121, that God is not the author of death, except in so far as it is a punishment. Reply to Objection 6. As Augustine says in On the City of God 13.5, Just as the wicked abuse not only evil but also good things, so do the righteous make good use not only of good but also of evil things. Hence it is that both evil men make evil use of the law, though the law is good, while good men die well, although death is an evil. Wherefore, inasmuch as holy men make good use of death, their death is to them meritorious. Reply to Objection 7. Death may be considered in two ways. First, as the privation of life, and thus death cannot be felt, since it is the privation of sense and life. In this way, it involves not pain of sense, but pain of loss. Secondly, it may be considered as denoting the corruption which ends in the aforesaid privation. Now we may speak of corruption even as of generation in two ways, in one way as being the term of alteration, and thus in the first instant in which life departs, death is said to be present. In this way also death has no pain of sense. In another way, corruption may be taken as including the previous alteration. Thus a person is said to die when he is in motion towards death, just as a thing is said to be engendered while in motion towards the state of having been engendered. And thus death may be painful. Reply to Objection 8 According to Augustine, Although our first parents lived thereafter many years, they began to die on the day when they heard the death decree, condemning them to the decline to old age. Second article. Whether the particular punishments of our first parents are suitably appointed in Scripture. Objection 1 it would seem that the particular punishments of our first parents are unsuitably appointed in Scripture. For that which would have occurred even without sin should not be described as a punishment for sin. Now seemingly there would have been pain in childbearing, even had there been no sin. For the disposition of the female sex is such that offspring cannot be born without pain to the bearer. Likewise, the subjection of woman to man results from the perfection of the male and the imperfection of the female sex. Again, it belongs to the nature of the earth to bring forth thorns and thistles, and this would have occurred even had there been no sin. Therefore, these are unsuitable punishments of the first sin. Objection to further that which pertains to a person's dignity does not, seemingly, pertain to his punishment. But the multiplying of conceptions pertains to a woman's dignity. Therefore, 
it should not be described as the woman's punishment. Objection 3 further. The punishment of our first parent's sin is transmitted to all, as we have stated with regard to death in Article 1. But all women's conceptions are not multiplied, nor does every man eat in the sweat of his face. Therefore, these are not suitable punishments of the first sin. Objection for further, the place of paradise was made for man. Now nothing in the order of things should be without purpose. Therefore, it would seem that the exclusion of man from paradise was not a suitable punishment of man. Objection 5. Further, this place of the earthly paradise is said to be naturally inaccessible. Therefore, it was useless to put other obstacles in the way lest man should return thither, to wit the cherubim and the flaming sword turning every way. Objection 6. Further, immediately after his sin, man was subject to the necessity of dying, so that he could not be restored to immortality by the beneficial tree of life. Therefore, it was useless to forbid him to eat of the tree of life, as instanced by the words of Genesis 3.22. See, lest perhaps he take of the tree of life and live forever. Objection 7. Further, to mock the unhappy seems inconsistent with mercy and clemency, which are most of all ascribed to God in Scripture, according to Psalm 144, verse 9, his tender mercies are over all his works. Therefore, God is unbecomingly described as mocking our first parents, already reduced through sin to unhappy straits, in the words of Genesis 3.22, Behold, Adam is become as one of us, knowing good and evil. Objection 8. Further, clothes are necessary to man like food, according to 1 Timothy 6.8, having food and wherewith to be covered, with these we are content. Therefore, just as food was appointed to our first parents before their sin, so also should clothing have been ascribed to them. Therefore, after their sin, it was unsuitable to say that God made for them garments of skin. Objection 9. Further, the punishment inflicted for a sin should outweigh in evil the gain realized through the sin, else the punishment would not deter one from sinning. Now through sin our first parents gained in this, that their eyes were opened, according to Genesis 3.7. But this outweighs in good all the penal sins which are stated to have resulted from sin. Therefore, the punishments resulting from our first parents' sin are unsuitably described. On the contrary, these punishments were appointed by God, who does all things in number, weight, and measure, according to Wisdom 11.21. I answer that, as stated in the foregoing article, on account of their sin, our first parents were deprived of the divine favor, whereby the integrity of human nature was maintained in them, and by the withdrawal of this favor, human nature incurred penal defects. 
hence they were punished in two ways. In the first place, by being deprived of that which was befitting the state of integrity, namely the place of the earthly paradise, and this is indicated in Genesis 3.23, where it is stated that God sent him out of the paradise of pleasure. And since he was unable of himself to return to that state of original innocence, it was fitting that obstacles should be placed against his recovering those things that were befitting his original state, namely food, lest he should take of the tree of life, and place. For God placed before paradise cherubim and a flaming sword. Secondly, they were punished by having appointed to them things befitting a nature bereft of the aforesaid favor, and this as regards both the body and the soul. With regard to the body, to which pertains the distinction of sex, one punishment was appointed to the woman and another to the man. To the woman, punishment was appointed in respect of two things, on account of which she is united to the man, and these are the begetting of children and community of works pertaining to family life. As regards the begetting of children, she was punished in two ways. First, in the weariness to which she is subject while carrying the child after conception, and this is indicated in the words of Genesis 3.16, I will multiply thy sorrows and thy conceptions. Secondly, in the pain which she suffers in giving birth, and this is indicated by the words of Genesis 3.16, In sorrow shalt thou bring forth. And as regards family life, she was punished by being subjected to her husband's authority, and this is conveyed in the words of Genesis 3.16, Thou shalt be under thy husband's power. Now, just as it belongs to the woman to be subject to her husband in matters relating to the family life, so it belongs to the husband to provide the necessities of that life. In this respect, he was punished in three ways. First, by the barrenness of the earth, in the words of Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the earth in thy work. Secondly, by the cares of his toil, without which he does not win the fruits of the earth, hence the words of 3.17, With labor and toil shalt thou eat thereof all the days of thy life. Thirdly, by the obstacles encountered by the tillers of the soil, wherefore it is written in Genesis 3.18, Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Likewise, a triple punishment is ascribed to them on the part of the soul, first by reason of the confusion they experienced at the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. Hence it is written in Genesis 3.7, the eyes of them both were opened, and they perceived themselves to be naked. Secondly, by the reproach for their sin, indicated by the words of Genesis 3.22, Behold, Adam is become as one of us. Thirdly, by the reminder of their coming death, when it was said to him in Genesis 3.19, Dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. To this also pertains that God made them garments of skin as a sign of their mortality. 
Reply to Objection 1. In the state of innocence, childbearing would have been painless, for Augustine says in On the City of God 1426, Just as, in giving birth, the mother would then be relieved not by groans of pain, but by the instigations of maturity, so in bearing and conceiving the union of both sexes would not be one of lustful desire, but of deliberate action. The subjection of the woman to her husband is to be understood as inflected in punishment of the woman, not as to his headship, since even before sin the man was the head and governor of the woman, but as to her having now to obey her husband's will even against her own. If man had not sinned, the earth would have brought forth thorns and thistles to be food of animals, but not to punish man, because their growth would bring no labor or punishment for the tiller of the soil, as Augustine says in his commentary on Genesis. Alcuin, however, holds that, before sin, the earth brought forth no thorns and thistles whatever, but the former opinion is the better. Reply to Objection 2. The multiplying of her conceptions was appointed as a punishment to the woman, not on account of the begetting of children, for this would have been the same even before sin, but on account of the numerous sufferings to which the woman is subject, through carrying her offspring after conception. Hence it is expressly stated, I will multiply thy sorrows and thy conceptions. Reply to Objection 3. These punishments affect all somewhat. For any woman who conceives must needs suffer sorrows and bring forth her child with pain, except the Blessed Virgin, who conceived without corruption and bore without pain, according to St. Bernard in his homily on the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because her conceiving was not according to the law of nature, transmitted from our first parents. And if a woman neither conceives nor bears, she suffers from the defect of barrenness, which outweighs the aforesaid punishments. Likewise, whoever tills the soil must needs eat his bread in the sweat of his brow, while those who do not themselves work on the land are busied with other labors, for man is born to labor, according to Job 5.7, and thus they eat the bread for which others have labored in the sweat of their brow. Reply to Objection 4. Although the place of the earthly paradise avails not man for his use, it avails him for a lesson, because he knows himself deprived of that place on account of sin, and because by the things that have a bodily existence in that paradise, he is instructed in things pertaining to the heavenly paradise, the way to which is prepared for man by Christ. Reply to Objection 5. Apart from the mysteries of the spiritual interpretation, this place would seem to be inaccessible, chiefly on account of the extreme heat in the middle zone by reason of the nighness of the sun. This is denoted by the flaming sword, which is described as turning every way, as being appropriate to the circular movement that causes this heat. 
And since the movements of corporal creatures are set in order through the ministry of the angels, according to Augustine in On the Trinity 3.4, it was fitting that, besides the sword turning every way, there should be cherubim, to keep the way of the tree of life. Hence Augustine says in his commentary on Genesis, its literal meaning, 1140, it is to be believed that even in the visible paradise this was done by heavenly powers indeed, so that there was a fiery guard set there by the ministry of angels. Reply to Objection 6. After sin, if man had eaten of the tree of life, he would not thereby have recovered immortality, but by means of that beneficial food he might have prolonged his life. Hence in the words, and live forever, forever signifies for a long time, for it was not expedient for man to remain longer in the unhappiness of this life. Reply to Objection 7. According to Augustine, in his commentary on the literal meaning of Genesis 11.39, These words of God are not so much a mockery of our first parents as a deterrent to others, for whose benefit these things are written, lest they be proud likewise, because Adam not only failed to become that which he coveted to be, but did not keep that to which he was made. Reply to Objection 8. Clothing is necessary to man in his present state of unhappiness for two reasons. First, to supply a deficiency in respect of external harm caused by, for instance, extreme heat or cold. Secondly, to hide his ignominy and to cover the shame of those members wherein the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit is most manifest. Now these two motives do not apply to the primitive state, because then man's body could not be hurt by any outward thing, as stated in the first part, question 97, article 2. Nor was there in man's body anything shameful that would bring confusion on him. Hence it is written in Genesis 2.23, And they were both naked, to wit, Adam and his wife, and were not ashamed. The same cannot be said of food, which is necessarily to entertain the natural heat and to sustain the body. Reply to Objection 9. As Augustine says in the same commentary, We must not imagine that our first parents were created with their eyes closed, especially since it is stated that the woman saw that the tree was fair and good to eat. Accordingly, the eyes of both were opened so that they saw and thought on things which had not occurred to their minds before, and this was a mutual concupiscence such as they had not hitherto. End of question 164 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.